in Ezra chapter 9. I'd like to begin reading at verse number 1. We'll read the first nine verses. And there's a phrase that grabbed my attention as I read this passage, and I want to preach to you a little bit about it this morning. Beginning in verse number 1, the Word of God says, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves unto the people from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle, and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard, and sat down a stony. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the transgression of those that had been carried away, and I sat a stony until the evening sacrifice. Let me pause there and say, that's a crowd you can do something with, right? Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel. I mean, that's a crowd that gets things done. Uh, when Israel spake trembling, she exalted herself. But when she offended in Baal, she died, is what the prophet said. Boy, it'd be good if we get that same attitude again for the Word of God, wouldn't it? Verse 5 says, And at the evening sacrifice I arose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and said, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to Thee, My God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. And now, for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant to escape, and to give us a nail in His holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, and to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. I want you to look back at verse number 8 with me. The Bible says, And now, for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, and to give us a nail in His holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this day. Now, Lord, as we approach unto Your throne, we ask that You consecrate these next few moments unto Your cause and unto Your glory. Now, Lord, if it was up to our flesh, we'd be distracted, we'd be discouraged. If it was up to our flesh, we'd have on our minds every single triviality that the world has to offer. But, Lord, we're seeking to mortify the deeds of the body this morning. And we're seeking, Lord, to give victory unto the new man and for you to have glory in our lives and in our listening in these next few moments. So, Father, I pray that you would have the liberty, that we would give you the liberty to move and to work in our beings and in our souls. Lord, and to rot in us something that would have an eternal consequence that would draw us closer to You, Lord, and that would bring more glory from our lives for You. 
Lord, I pray if there's any lost this morning in our midst that You'd convict them. Lord, if there's any that are backslidden, You'd reclaim them for Your glory. But Lord, that in all things Your will might be done. Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we approach the ninth chapter of the book of Ezra, Ezra has just entered the city of Jerusalem. It's funny as you read the book of Ezra that Ezra really don't show up in the book of Ezra till about the seventh chapter. But once he does show up, God does a work in the midst of the lives of the Jewish people through this scribe by the name of Ezra. Ezra was tasked. There had already been an earlier uh, uh, delegation that had been sent to, to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And uh, there had already been some folks that had been working there. But in that interval of time, and you can read about it in the book of Haggai and Zechariah, they, they showed up, they expected it to be easy. Now, how many times have you went to do the will of God, you thought it was going to be easy and it didn't turn out that way? That ever happened to you? They said, we're going to go back, it's all going to be great, we're going to show up, build the temple, we'll have that done two, three hours, and then we'll sit back and rest. Well, they get back to Israel and they find a place that is overgrown. It has laid waste for 70, 80 years. And when they get there, it's in disrepair. The walls are broken down. There's nomadic peoples. There's bandits that are living uh, in that proximity. And they get there and they get discouraged. And so they work for a little while. They lay the foundation of the temple. But pretty soon they give up and they go back to just living their lives. Well, God stirs up the spirit of Haggai and Zechariah and they begin to prophesy. And through them, the people are driven to continue the work. Well, during this period of time, Ezra is sent with a group of Levites and of priests to go and to labor and to work there and to finish the building of the temple. Well, he gathers everything together. And actually, if the Lord let us, we're going to preach a little out of chapter 8 tonight, so I don't want to say too much. Uh, yeah, I know you got a copy of the book. You can read it on your own time, but I know you're too carnal to do that. So it'll be a surprise for you not when we get here. But uh, they get there and they get everything sort of settled. And uh, when Ezra gets settled there at Jerusalem, immediately the princes that are there come to him, the leaders in the community. They come to him and they say, Ezra, you don't know what's been going on here before you got here. The people that are living here, they've married Gentiles, they've married pagans. It's affecting their families. There is an undercurrent of uh, rebellion and of uh, paganism that is taking place in the community right now. Ezra, there are big problems and we need to address them. Ezra is burdened by this, and you read the verses with me. He falls on his face, he rends his garment and his mantle, he sets a stone in. You know what that means? He, he literally, he just sat there soaking it in for a few hours, didn't know what to do. And then he rises up and he begins to pray to the Lord about this situation. And he uses a phrase in verse number 8 to describe it that fascinates it with me. Notice it again with me in verse number 8. He says, And now for a little space... Grace hath been showed from the Lord our God. I want to preach if the Lord will help me to this morning on a little space by God's grace. You know, as we consider this group of people, I notice just by simple introduction, three things that are characteristic about them. Look back in verse number 6. The Bible says this, Ebrezer is praying and and he said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to thee, my God. Now notice this next phrase. He says, For our iniquities are increased over our head. 
When he makes his opening statements about the condition of Israel at this moment, when he lifts his hands towards heaven, when he opens the throne room of grace, he comes in before the Lord. He says, Lord, I'm ashamed to even have to be here. I don't want to lift my eyes to you. But Lord, I came to tell you something about your people. And the first thing he says is, we are overwhelmed by our iniquities. That's literally what the phrase means, isn't it? To be in over your head in something. You know, isn't that the way that sin works? We all think when we, when we get a little pet sin in our life or when we go down a dark road, we really we think we've got this thing handled. We, we don't think it's going to get the best of us. We think that we can just do it for a little while and then stop. Or we think we can just do it once. No one will find out. It won't hurt anything. It won't affect anything. And, you know, that's how the nation of Israel was too. When it started out, when they began to intermingle, did you know that it was not a sin of commission that brought them to this place, but rather sin of omission? Whenever Joshua led them into the land, God had gave a commandment that they were to destroy every single people group that was there. Now, you say, well, that's cruel. Well, that's God. God said that, right? Somebody say amen. Hey, we sang, we worship. You're going to shout when we sing. God shout when we worship. That's the deal. Amen. You should have read the fine print when you walked in the door. All right? You are contractually obligated. And so when they get into the land, they were supposed to destroy every people group there, but they didn't. You know what they did? They left a few people groups, and they learned to get along with them. Let me tell you something. It's a dark day in your life and my life when we just learn to get along with a little sin in our lives. But Man, that's where we're at, most of us nowadays. There are things that come across the television in our home. There are things that come across the speakers of our radio. There are things that come across the screen of our computer that people a hundred years ago would have been appalled by, that people fifty years ago would have been appalled by. You walk up and down the street and you see more flesh, you see more pornography that you could have bought in a dark alley fifty years ago. But you and I, friend, we've just got used to it. It's just become normal for us. That's just the way of the world. It's just the way things go. I'm telling you something. We didn't expect it to go this way. But we let some things exist in our society. And here we are today. Here we are today in a day where, listen, in a day where a a little girl might have a baby before she's done playing with baby dolls. We didn't plan for that. We live in a day where young people, listen, the the biggest worry they ought to have in the week ought to be getting up on Saturday morning uh, to watch cartoons. you got young people that are, uh, doctors are trying to wean them off drugs and trying to wean them off of liquor and wean them off of alcohol. We live in a day, we never expected it to get this bad, did we? America never thought it would go this far. Uh, Your generation, you said, it'll never get that. There'll never come a day. I mean, listen, I know there's some some sodomites in society right now, but I mean, they'll never marry. Right? And let me tell you something. Now you and I, we're sitting around going, yeah, the sodomites are married, but I mean, hey, you know, they'll never let pedophiles marry. Hey, it happened in ancient Rome, didn't it? It could happen here. I'm just telling you this. Sin always works that way. They were in over their head in their iniquity. They didn't plan that. They just left a few things in society. But you know what happened? Uh, their passive, permissive attitude led to a life of sin and iniquity, just like Lot. Lot wasn't planning on moving into Sodom. He just wanted to pitch his tent in that direction. But pretty soon, by the time that you find him, he's seated in the gate of the city, a place of prominence, a place of uh, responsibility. He didn't plan on that, but that's what happens. You go to dip your toe in the murky waters of iniquity, and pretty soon you'll be overwhelmed by it. Ezra lifts his head towards heaven, and he prays, and he says, God, I'll go ahead and admit it, we're overwhelmed by our iniquities. And notice the second thing that he says. 
He says that our iniquity has gone over our head. It's increased over our head. And his next phrase is this. He says, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. As he describes them, he says, number one, you're overwhelmed by your iniquity. But number two, he says, we have offended the Almighty. You know, one of the things that bothers me more than anything in the, in the dialect or the dialogue, I guess I should say, in the conversation of much modern-day Christianity is very few people talk about God as if He is a person and a personality. Most people talk of God in the generic. But God is a person with a personality, with an opinion, with a mind, with a will about Him. And Ezra says this, not only have we allowed ourselves to get trapped in our iniquity, not only have we gotten in over our head, we didn't plan for this, we never were looking for this, but now we realize that in the midst of all this iniquity, we have driven a wedge between our God and ourselves. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that when you sin, it offends God. I know that's basic. I mean, I know that is elementary. But it's a truth that we rarely grasp. We think of the consequences of of sin first off on ourselves, most of us. We think, what's going to happen to me if I do this? Next, I mean, if we're real spiritual, we might think of the consequences of sin on our spouse or on our family. And we think, well, how's that going to affect them? If we're really, I'm talking about a five-star, three-time-a-week Bible-carrying Christian, we might even think of the effects that our sin might have on uh, our co-workers and on the people that we have a, a witness with. But there's very few of us that consciously acknowledge when we sin, when you partake, when you eat of that forbidden fruit, when you walk down that path, when you commit that trespass, you have offended an almighty God. And you have severed your fellowship with Him. Ezra, it's interesting the way Ezra says it. I mean, uh, when he is praying, and and I don't know if you know this, but this is a good example. In fact, this is a, a text verse on the posture that Jewish people had when they prayed. I don't know if you're aware of this. You know, we pray, you know, like this or like this or whatever. But it was typical when Jewish people prayed that they would kneel down and hold their hands towards heaven. Here's Ezra. He's got his hands held towards heaven, his face staring downward at the ground. He can't even look at God. Why? Because he is keenly aware of what their sin has done in the eyes and heart of an almighty God. Listen, I know you're here today. You didn't plan on living in sin, but nobody ever plans on living in sin. You didn't think it was going to affect anybody. And you might, listen, you might still be living in that grace period. You know, there is a grace period, it seems. A lot of times when we sin, when we do wrong, when we uh, practice iniquity, it seems like there's a little time we can keep it quiet. I mean, Achan, listen, Achan, he kept the silver and the gold and the Babylonian garment. He kept it buried a little while. Don't you know that Achan may have thought to himself, I've got away with this thing. I buried this stuff under the floor of my tent. Nobody knows about this. Nobody saw me come in here. Nobody's aware of it. But listen, there was a God in heaven that saw the heart and intents and the actions and motives and everything that Achan had done. And he may have hid it from Joshua. And he may have hid it from his forefathers. He may have hid it from the nation of Israel. But you can't hide sin from God. That's what it comes down to. You may think that nobody knows about it. You may have something going on in your life. You may have something going on in your heart. You may have something going on in, in, in the sin that you practice or something to that extent. And you think, man, nobody knows about this. Nobody's going to find out about it. I've got my tracks covered. I've got my lies told. I've got everything. All my bases are covered. No one's ever going to find out about it. But friend, I've got news for you. You're not waiting for God to find out about it. God already knows about it. 
And it offends an almighty God when we sin. Let me say a third thing. Not only were they overwhelmed by their iniquity, and not only had they offended the Almighty, but I want you to notice this third thing. Look at verse number 7. The Bible says this, Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and a confusion of face as it is this day. Let me say that number three, by way of introduction, when Ezra describes the state of Israel, he describes them as being overcome by the enemy. He says, listen, ever since the day that we stepped out of the will of God, we've known nothing but heartache over it. From the day that they determined uh, in Joshua's day, after Joshua died, and it was the responsibility of the leadership of Israel after that to exterminate those people groups and not allow them to live. Ever since that day, they had known nothing but heartache and headache. To this day, we still see the Jews have it being contentious and the world being contentious with the Jews. We still live in a day where they don't have rest on any side. We still live in a day where the sword does not depart from their country. Listen, you and I sit here today and we don't give much thought uh, to someone coming in and harming us. Uh, But right now in Israel, people that are gathered are worried about somebody coming in with a bomb strapped to their chest, coming in with a gun in their hand, coming in with a knife in their hand. I'm telling you that the sword has still not departed from Israel. I'm telling you that captivity is still a reality to them. I'm telling you that the, the, the wolf is still at the door in that land. And you know what they said? Ezra says, our sin is the reason for this. We've sinned and that's the reason. The enemy has overcome us. Let me tell you something. Victory is in Jesus Christ. The battle is the Lord's. It don't matter how well you fight the battle, it's not your battle. Let me say that again. I think somebody needs to hear that. I don't know who, but I think somebody needs to hear that. I don't care how much you fight or how well you fight that battle, it's not your battle. The battle is the Lord's. And so it's his battle to fight. He has the victory. If you're going to have victory, you can only have it through yielding to him. That's the only way that's going to take place. We think to ourselves that uh, things happen just by happenstance, by coincidence. But Ezra acknowledges that the persecution that they have, have dealt with, that the, that, that the sword that has never departed, the captivity that they have endured, the heartache. And you know what's the last thing he, he says? He says, confusion of face. You know what he's saying? Ezra says, We don't know what to do anymore. We don't know if we're coming or going anymore. We can't understand what's taking place around us. How many of you ever met a Christian that was in that shape? I know I have. That they were just at the point of despair and didn't know what to do any longer. That's what happens when the enemy takes over in your life. We do have an enemy. Somebody help me now. We do have an enemy. And listen, when you allow sin in your life, you allow an open door in your life for him. You know what Paul called it? He called it giving him an advantage. Giving him an advantage. Let Satan have an advantage over us. And when we allow sin in our lives, that's what we're doing. We're letting an open door in for him. You know why? He's the accuser of the brethren. Right? Our sins, man, they washed away at Calvary. But it's a little hard to approach the throne room with boldness when you've got sin in your life. It's a little hard to callously claim the victory of the cross of Calvary when we're hiding sin in our heart and life. And so you know what we do? Our greatest and only resource, we do not use it. 
We do not go to the prayer closet to find help when we've got sin in our life. We do not go back to the promises of the Word of God to find a sure footing for our soul when we've got sin in our life. We do not claim the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as victory over sin, past, present, and future when we have sin in our lives. You know what we do? We just sit back and get quiet. And the enemy begins to run circles around us. Ezra says, this is the picture I see in front of me as I look at the nation of Israel. He says, but... In the midst of all this, God has done something. Now, I want you to notice these three things. I don't have subpoints or anything. I want to give you three things that God says He's done for them. i got good news for you this morning. If you're living in sin this morning, you don't have to stay living in sin. i got good news for you. If you've messed up, God hadn't thrown you away this morning. God has shown grace in your life. And God showed grace in their life. Ezra is acknowledging that though they have lived in sin, though they have spurned God's goodness, God has still, at that very moment in their national history, Ezra says, God has given us a little space by His grace that we might turn and repent. And how did He do that? I want you to notice three things with me. Look at verse number 8. There's three things God says He is going to give them or has given them. That's how you can sort of remember Him. It says, And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. Now notice this first one. To give us a nail in His holy place that our God may lighten our eyes. Now that may seem like a little strange language to you and I. But you have to understand that as Ezra spoke of this nail, he was speaking figuratively. And what he was speaking of symbolically was the place that they were at at that time that God had given them that they might deal with him. You have to understand, Ezra is in Jerusalem. Ezra has not been in Jerusalem. Uh, we don't know if he ever visited, but it's been many years since he's been in Jerusalem. He has literally just showed up on the scene. The foundation is laid. The instruments have been brought in. The sacrifice is about to be given. And Ezra shows up and he finds out that though God's ready for a sacrifice, though the temple's ready for a sacrifice, the people are not ready for a sacrifice. And so he looks around at this place. And he says, boy, God has been gracious to us because He has given us a place to sacrifice and a place to hear the Word of God. Let me say that every sermon preached to us, I don't say this because I'm a preacher, I say it because it's the truth of the Word of God. Every sermon preached to us when we're living in sin is an act of grace on the part of God. Let me tell you something. You say, what is that nail, preacher? He's talking about a place to drive their tent pegs. That's what he's talking about. A place where they might put down stakes. A foundation point. A home base. And Ezra says, in the midst of all this, here we've been 70 years, we ain't had a temple. 70 years, there's been no sacrifice. 70 years, we've lived in pagan darkness. But God hadn't forgot about us. And the way I know that is He's brought us back to this place where we can hear the Word of God preach, where we can see the sacrifices given, where we can be reminded of the truth of God's Word. Oftentimes, when we have sin in our lives, the Word of God becomes bitter to our bellies. It convicts us. It cuts coming and going. And let me tell you something. There's been times that I've heard a man of God preach, and there was nothing fun about it, and there was nothing comfortable about it. I like those fun sermons. I like to preach them. You like to hear them. We all like to have them. I like to get up and just shout it out and have a good time. But let me tell you something. There's times in my life when I don't need a sermon like that. There's times in my life where I've allowed sin to take root in my heart and in my life, and I need somebody to take that uh, that Word of God that's sharper than a two-edged sword and cut that root up and cast it out. I need the Word of God to be 
sharp and effective in my life. I need it to tell me where I'm wrong. I need it to tell me what I need to get right. I need it to tell me why I need it to get right and how I need to get it right. And I'm glad that when I've sinned, God still gives me a nail in a place where I can hear the Word of God. I'm glad that God still gives us the testimony of His Word. But then I want you to notice the second thing. He says, God has given us a nail. Or we might say this, God had given them a place in the sanctuary. But look at the next phrase that's used at the end of verse 8. He says, God's give us a nail in His holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and what? And give us a little reviving in our bondage. Let me say that it's an act of grace that God has given us a place in His sanctuary where we can hear the Word of God. But let me say it's an act of grace that God has given us a persuasion inside us for stirring. You know what he's saying, don't you? Here they are. They've been living in sin. They've been, they are grounded in apathy. I want you to listen carefully to that. They are grounded in apathy. You know what apathy is? You want a good picture of apathy? How many of you have teenagers in your life? Some kind of teenager of some kind. Then you know what apathy is. This is what apathy is. That's what apathy is. Who cares? Who cares? Let me tell you something. I, I see it in church all the time. And I'm not saying it's not in my life at times. I know it's in my life at times. Uh, listen, I, some of y'all, you say, well, you're hard on us preachers. You preach to us all the time. You think you got it rough. God's the one preaching to me all the time. i got to get it before I get to give it to you. And there's times when God is wanting to deal with my heart, and my response is, oh, well. Toby, you got sin in your life. Well, so is everybody else. Toby, revival could start with you. Well, yeah, but that's true of everybody. Well, so what? So what? They are grounded in apathy. They're living in sin. They know they're living in sin. They don't care that they're living in sin. But you know what God says to them? Ezra makes this statement. He says, in the midst of all this, man, in the midst of us not only living in sin, but it not even bothering us that we're living in sin, God has given us a witness of His tabernacle. But not only has He given us a witness of His tabernacle, He has stirred in the midst of us an understanding of our iniquity. He says God wants to breathe a little life in the midst of our bondage. Here they are in the chains of another empire. You know, that's what you're in when you're living in sin. You're in the chains of another empire. No hope and no help. But you know what God does? He's the breaker of chains. Somebody say amen to that. Paul and Silas chained up in prison. They got to singing and testifying and praising God. And God said, I like that. I'll just let them go. Maybe they'll do more of that. Amen? God's the chain breaker. Here they are in the bondage of another empire. But the hand of God moves down and through the message of Ezra and through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, God stirs them a little bit and awakens them to their sin. Let me tell you something. That thumping in your chest, you better praise God for it because God could just leave you alone. <laughs> it ain't comfortable. I know it's not comfortable. Now, listen, nobody argues more than when altar time comes. I've said this before. I'll say it again. Right, we'll sit in a service. We'll go, Amen, preacher. That's right, preacher. We'll think within ourselves, Boy, that's me. And then altar time will come and we'll say, Well, that's for them. I know it's uncomfortable. I know what happens when the altar call starts. I see it from up there. I, I know what happens. I see it happen. 
I see the accuser and the adversary move in. I see people that sat white-knuckled through a preaching service all of a sudden can't hold their head up enough to stay awake. I see people uh, that all the time, I mean, I could stare into the very whites of their eyes and into the depths of their soul that when altar call time comes, the phone starts ringing, the hymn books come open, and there's a battle that begins to take place whether we're going to move for God. Uh, Let me tell you something. You better not take lightly when the Spirit of God stirs you. That's grace being shown to you. God doesn't have to do that for you. There's been lots of folks that they have pushed back against the Holy Ghost long enough that God just took them out of this world. There is a sin unto death. God doesn't have to give you another chance. God doesn't have to give you another opportunity, but He does that. Why? By grace. You know what He's doing? He's just giving you a little space. He's pushing back the armies of hell so that you can take a breath of fresh air just for one moment. He's pushing back the influences of the world so that you can just for a little while pull the scales off your eyes and take a deep breath and say, maybe God does love me. and Maybe I ought to live for Him. He's just giving you a little space by grace. Man, I'm glad for that persuasion. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, but I, listen, I'd a lot rather uh, that He convict me than that He just let me alone. Let me say that the second thing. He says, I'm going I'm to give you a stirring. I'm going to give you a little reviving in the midst of your bondage. But then notice this, and I'm done. Look at verse number 9. The Bible says this, For we were bondmen. I like this, man. Yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage. Oh, man, we could just preach for hours on that, couldn't we? God hath not forsaken us in our bondage. They were in their bondage because of their own doing. You know what you and I would have said if we as God, we would have said they made their bed. Now let them lie in it. Let them be buried in it if that's what it'll take. That's what you and I would have said. God didn't say that with the nation of Israel. As many times as they spurned them, He still sought to love them and draw them and raise them from the dry bones of their iniquity and breathe life into them again. That's what He does for you and I. Many times as we sin, as many times as we mess up, many times as we turn from God, God is still good enough to work in our hearts and lives. That's grace. He says, we were bondmen. We were in bondage. But God hath what? He hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair the desolations thereof, and notice this, and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. Let me say that one of the things God gave them in grace was a place in the sanctuary where they could be met with truth. Another thing that God gave them was a persuasion for stirring that that truth might be applied, that they might be unseated from their apathy. But then finally, I want you to notice that God gave them a plan for security. Because God was planning for the future. You know what, God, this wall that they're talking about, it won't be built in Ezra's time, but it will be built in Nehemiah's time. And God is seeking to give them a wall. Now, why do you need a wall except God plans on putting a city there? God had already protected them. God could have wiped them entirely out and started over if He had chosen to, but He did not. I, I, I don't think we grasp sometimes how extreme was and how dire was the circumstance. You understand that at one time, one of the greatest nations in the known world under Solomon's rule. Under Solomon's rule, kings came from all over the world. They brought mountains of gold. They brought armies of horses. They brought entire, I mean, cities worth of timbers and building materials to Solomon. They would come from the other ends of the world and they would wonder at his wisdom in science and in art and in the things of God. And the, the kingdom had grown and had swelled and there was so much power and so much influence. You come down to the time just prior to this captivity 
and the entire northern ten tribes have been wiped off the face of the earth. They've been blotted out of a covenant relationship with God never to exist like they once did. The tribes are gone. The people are mingled. Pagans are living at their very doorsteps. And still God sent prophets. And still God sent messages. And still God tried to stir them. But the lower two nations, the lower two kingdoms of of Judah and Benjamin, still they rebelled against God. And God sends them into Babylonian captivity. But oh, it could have been so much worse. He sends them into captivity, but He preserves them. He gives them people like Jeremiah. He gives them people like Ezekiel. He gives them people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And still, He preserves the vessels that belong in the temple. How that happened, you tell me. How did the vessels survive the captivity? But somehow they did. God had left them a remnant. God had left them something to build with. God had already had a wall built around them. Why? Because He had a plan for the future. I don't care how much sin you're living in. You could be living in more sin, and probably but for the grace of God, you would be living in more sin. There ain't no telling the kind of things that would happen in our life if God took the hedge away from our lives and quit with His hand upon us. But now as He brings them back into Jerusalem, you know what He says? Ezra says, I know why God's doing this. God wants to give us a wall again. They hadn't had a wall in 70... You know, a wall... I don't know if you're aware of this. I ain't going to get too political. But did you know that walls keep people out? Anybody know that? I know that's real basic, but they do. And that's why all of these ancient cities were walled cities. And Jerusalem had been a walled city. And, and the whole book of Nehemiah is about the importance of having a walled city. Why? Because a wall equaled security. God said, Ezra says, God wants to give us a wall. You know what he's saying? He's saying, God has a future in mind for you and I. God has a plan for you and I. Everything could have been washed away. We could have been like our northern brethren, all ten tribes washed away, but God's preserved us. It could have been so much worse, but God has kept us safe. And here we are today, and He has revived us, and He is stirring us, and He's given us a temple, and He's trying to work in our life. Why? Because He wants to build a wall, because He wants to have a city, because He wants us to be something again. (laughs) You're here today, you say, preacher, I messed up. Well, you may have messed up, but I'd say the Lord's still got a wall in mind for you. God's still got a plan for your life. Hey, that's grace. That's grace right there. God's still got a plan. You say, I don't know how it's going to work. Well, you don't have to know how it's going to work. God knows how it's going to work. But He's got a plan for you. Preacher, I'm not what I used to be. No, but you can be something that you ain't right now. You may not be what you once were, but you can still go on and live for God and do something for Him. God God works in broken pieces. God picks up destroyed lives. And when the clay is marred, He doesn't throw it out. He remakes it again. And He does something real and new and lasting and eternal with it. And that's what He wants to do with your life. Say, preacher, i got sin in my life. Well, confess it and get it out. You've had a little space of grace this morning. You've heard, and listen, I'm not much, and I'll be the first to tell you that, but I believe what I preached this morning is true. And you've heard the truth of the Word of God. And the Spirit of God, I hope, has stirred your heart. And God's given you a little space this morning because He's got a wall in mind for you. And He's got a future for you. The question is, if we'll repent and turn to Him and exercise in this grace that He's given us this morning.